Hello everyone, it's October 26th, 2021. This week it's back to Starliner and what went wrong with those sticky valves. We still have a lot of questions. Then we'll be talking to Will Henry and Dylan Taylor about their documentary, The High Frontier, the untold story of Gerard K. O'Neill. Big show, let's get to it, and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 331 of the Open Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. Did you guys hear about a classified space debris mitigation mission launched by China. I figured I'd talk about that since we have no reference to it in the rest of the show. I thought it was kind of interesting. <laughs> and there's so little known about it that it makes for a nice short little talk because there's not much we can say. Yeah, I, I didn't hear about that, but I did hear about um, a reentry vehicle that they tested, like a hypersonic reentry vehicle. Um, and people are people suspect that it's got really high cross-range um, capabilities. It's like really re- maneuverable once it re-enters. Oh, mm. see, I didn't hear about that. That sounds mm. even more interesting. So now I want to hear more about that. Oh, y- yeah, so would I. <laughs> <laughs> so the big uh, contra- not controversy, but uh, the concern with the orbital debris satellite is that, of course, this could be used for other reasons and not, you know, they're not just to remove debris, but also to yeah. possibly disable To remove satellites. other spacecraft from orbit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you, if you have a creative definition of debris, you can do some fun things. <laughs> yeah. Since you guys both brought up Chinese spaceflight events that none of the rest of us knew. <laughs> um, did you know that they were able to recover that uh, Xi'an uh, or Xi'an uh, space uh, or satellite? Oh yeah, yeah. They started using like uh, RCS thruster burns to get it up to a circularized orbit. Yeah, this was the one that was stranded in GTO. Wow. Yeah, a lot going on in the world of Chinese space. Mm-hmm. So Starliner, the Starliner investigation continuation continues. That was very well said. All right. Um, I love these creative titles to these segments. So what's going on? So do we have any more information now? And I assume that we do because obviously we wouldn't be talking about it. Yeah. um, I mean, we have more information about what they're doing, but that's it's not super satisfying. Just uh, spoiler alert. So first off, I got to say thank you to Delta V. Um, there was a teleconference this week um, that NASA and Boeing put on and uh, uh, Delta V tuned in and, and dumped a bunch of notes in our Discord chat as it went along. Uh, and that was really cool to, to pay attention to. And then uh, I've got one link in the show notes from uh, spacenews.com. I feel like there's got to be at least uh, one other news source covering this uh this teleconference. But again, it's not super satisfying. So I'm not like really, uh, not really holding my breath. So I, I kind of broke this, this whole thing up into like four sections. The, the first one is talking about, uh, the diagnostics, um, what, what they're doing. So, um, right now they are currently, uh, continuing to remove all the valves, uh, and they're doing that in their factory this week. Uh, they were able to pull out two more of the stuck valves, um, but they're still working on a third, at least uh, at the time of the teleconference. And then once they've got those valves pulled out of the vehicle, they're actually sending them to a facility in White Sands um, to do CT scans. Um, and then once they've done their CT scans, they uh, disassemble it and actually uh, f- you know, clear out all the all the gunk. I'm assuming that they are clearing the gunk instead of pulling new uh, valves off the shelves. I believe they want to reuse these, which makes sense if it's just a little bit of corrosion, you replace the the Teflon and, and you're good to go. So yeah, so they, they pulled two more out 
uh, this week. They've got a third that they're working on. And I, I don't know if that's all of the valves that they're going to pull out. It kind of sounds like it might be. Okay. So then the next section that they talked about was like the root cause. And this is where it's really unsatisfying. They're still sticking with, uh, oxidizer mixing with atmospheric humidity or water in the line. Uh, that reaction resulted in nitric acid being generated and then the nitric acid corroded the valve. They're sticking with this idea of it possibly being atmospheric humidity, which to for that to be consistent with reality, you really have to have not a lot of corrosion, right? And indeed, they they didn't have very much corrosion at all. To unstick these valves, like they were practically able to do it on the vehicle, except they had to apply higher voltages and, and heat the, the valve up a little bit. But even then, like the valve's motor itself was able to do the unsticking. So yeah, again, unsatisfying, no changes to the root cause. What was really cool though. Oh yeah. Uh, Chris in the chat says, well, isn't rain technically humidity in the atmosphere? Yeah. Actually, they, when they got to a question that I think was actually really interesting, they did talk about that. So Delta V pointed this question out as interesting and they, apparently the question was asked in a, in a much more polite way, but Delta V like, um, said it, it basically boils down to why didn't you see this coming? Florida is wet. Um, and, and that, that's like the question that we've all been asking. So their answer wasn't super direct, but they said that, you know, they know that Florida is wet, but maybe, you know, the storm that had blown through before the launch, uh, contributed to additional atmospheric humidity. And then they, they started talking about how long the oxidizer was in the tanks, but I want to talk about the, the atmospheric humidity. They, while they were answering this question, they actually said specifically they don't think there was evidence of water intrusion or um rain ingression i think those are <laughs> i think those words are just synonyms for each other sure. um but in inside the rest of service module they did actually see increased condensation so it kind of leads you to believe that yeah there there was pretty intense humidity going on so uh the amount of or the the length of time that the oxidizer was in the vehicle well, so the, these valves, uh, don't have de- absolute heritage. These valves have never been flowed, but they're, they're only slightly modified, uh, from valves that do have, um, uh, flight time. Though the valves that they are basing these on are not valves that have been used for oxidizer in the past, only, uh, fuel or, you know, other propellants. I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but this is the first time this particular valve uh, or any valve in its, you know, lineage has been used for oxidizer. That kind of raises a little bit of a red flag, but they say that they tested it and it, and it was fine. And these Teflon seals are, you know, a solid engineering idea or engineering paradigm. The, the seals are supposed to be, uh, compatible with, uh, nitrogen tetroxide. Delta V speculates that compatible means, uh, non-reactive. I think that seems pretty reasonable because while they're compatible, these Teflon seals are known to be slightly permeable to this oxidizer. Now, this is where we get into, uh, how long the, the vehicle was tanked up. They, rated these valves as being able to, well, they, they rated the whole system as being able to sit on a pad tanked up with nitrogen tetroxide for 60 days. OFT one 
was tanked for 35 days and didn't have any permeation issues, or at least um, not enough that, that they noticed sticky valves. However, OFT1 also did a wet dress rehearsal that you know, kind of flushed these valves out at some point. So maybe it was, you know, effectively less than 35 days. OFT2, on the other hand, was tanked up for 45 days with none of that refreshing. So, or at least I don't, I don't believe it had any of that refreshing. Um, so OFT2 didn't hit the 60 days, but you know, maybe that 60 day rating is not good. So setting the 60 day limit. Uh, they know that oxidizer permeates through Teflon and they actually saw this exact same thing happen on shuttle, believe it or not. Uh, shuttle uses nitrogen tetroxide in its RCS system and, uh, they, they did indeed see some corrosive damage. I'm assuming that is only on the ground, right? I, I think once they get into orbit, you don't have to worry about humidity in the air. Yeah. And this is one of my favorite things to watch during a launch because like, you see the paper, at least at the ones mm -hmm. on the Ohms pods, just blow yeah. apart uh, just yep. from the <laughs> the environment around them, how intense it is when they fire the main engines. Yeah, yeah. And and that those uh those valve covers are what's that really Tyvek. nice Tyvek, there you go. Because I always mix it up. I think there's a company called Tyvac. Uh -huh. And so I often mix up Tyvac versus Tyvek, but Okay. It's Tyvek. <laughs> yeah, great. I did I had never heard of the company Tyvac, so Thanks for um, <laughs> sure. uh, contaminating my memory. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, they they don't have uh, Tyvek covers uh, on the vents on Starliner, but I, I wonder if that's one of the things that they might do in the future. I don't know how effective they really were for shuttle because, um, you know, you really would have to seal them pretty darn tight. But yeah, uh, I'm glad you brought that up, Dennis, because I, I do really enjoy seeing those go fluttering away. <laughs> so yeah, so this whole issue seemed really well characterized. Like it seemed like a known quantity and a apparently something is a little different here that's that's kind of tripping them up. So if the question is, why didn't you uh, anticipate this issue? You know, the answer is kind of, well, we we didn't characterize our system well enough or we didn't realize that we uh, had made a change that that altered the way that we understand this material. And then the, the immediate next question is, well, what are you going to do in the future? It's all the things that you would expect, really. They're, they're not going to change the, the valve selection, which I think is a good idea. I think this is too late in the game uh, to go uh, source, purchase, uh, and install new valves. However, they have a number of remediation steps. One has already been made. They've added to the design... Uh, some desiccants. So there are vent holes near the valves and they're going to shove those vents full of desiccant, which like really that's, that's the way to do it, right? Every pair of shoes that you purchase has got uh, silicon packets in it, those little uh, sachets. Uh, and so now your, uh, your spacecraft is going to come with those as well. So Ben, can I ask, what does the desiccant for a spacecraft look like? Or is it literally just they're going to be throwing these little crystals in there? Or <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> that seems dangerous. <laughs> they they have not said, but I I would be really shocked if it didn't come down to um, dry silica, like anhydrous silica pellets, in some sort of packaging. Wow. Okay. Um, they'll probably be bigger packets than the sachets that go in in shoes or in beef jerky. Um, but they, uh, you know, and you can buy them 
you can buy pretty chunky little beanbag kind of things. Um, but I, I would be shocked if they're not buying, you know, a standard off the shelf uh, desiccant mm-hmm. packet. And obviously these would be removed before flight, right? I don't think so. I th- I think they might fly to space. So you just put a beanbag in the... Yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah. That doesn't seem like a good idea, but... Maybe when the well, seal I mean, rips it... off on launch, the that'll go with it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of what I'm thinking is they're probably... They haven't said that they're going to like duct tape them in. So I, I assume that they're just going to fall out on ascent, right? It's just that they take so much care to not make sure that anything gets in, you know, inside the engines with covers and all this, and then they're just going to oh, shove I it see. with something. Oh, I see. I don't believe that they're going inside the engines. Um, the phrasing that they had, what... Oh, you mean like getting sucked into the engine after it gets yeah. ejected? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just like having to put that in anywhere on a spacecraft when it shouldn't be there. I, I mean, it needs to be there to soak up the water, but... um. Yeah, but and you know, job. if they're if they're doing a chunky pellet, that could do some damage if it you know impinges mm-hmm. on something or I- impacts on something. So yeah, I, you know, I I don't I don't know if they're planning on taking them out. Uh, I wonder if if they know. Well, I guess they said that they've made this change to their procedures. So um, yeah, I guess we'll see. Um, Tape it to and the they, inside they have couple- of the seal. Sorry. <laughs> That would be my yeah my yeah. <laughs> um, so they have uh, a couple of other changes that they are considering. Um, they may implement one or all of these, or one or both of these, because I think they only mentioned two that I saw. So they're planning on changing the, or they're considering changing the spec so that they load the propellants later in the the run up to launch. Um, and if they don't go that extreme, uh, a less extreme alternative would just be. Uh, purging the valves um, more often or more times, I guess. Um, and then uh, when when they loosen these valves up back in the factory, they heated up the valve and applied higher voltage, right? So one of the things that they're thinking about doing is adding additional heaters in the system to help uh, evacuate these corrosion pro- products. And so what's really interesting to me is that they're they specifically said to evacuate corrosion products, but I would think that a heater would be way more helpful in that it would help uh, evaporate some of the nitric acid before it could cause corrosion. And then the the final thing in the in this little section that was another thing that I think we had talked about um, was um, John Vollmer. He's a VP and he's also the commercial crew program manager. He confirmed that Boeing is covering the full cost of the investigation and repairs and that NASA is not going to see any of this, uh, any of this expense. That's really good. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and I think we had, we had asked that amongst ourselves, hadn't we? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So there, there's the answer for that. Uh, all right. So the future, um, OFT2 is currently planned for the first half of 2022 pending both spacecraft readiness and range readiness. I think uh, range readiness is kind of something that you you don't get a choice on. You know, there's so many other things happening at the range. Uh, you kind of have to go with the flow. But spacecraft readiness basically says, we want to fly in 2022 unless we haven't finished working. <laughs> a little bit of a cop out. Um, if they're able to fly OFT2 in the first half of 2022, um, they want to fly CFT as fast as they can after that. Uh, during the conference call, they said that they like to have six months between Starliner launches, but you know, they, they could potentially launch CFT two six months, uh, after this. And, uh, that could seem a little worrying, but 
A, they would have six months to, to get ready for it and, and make changes based on lessons learned. But also, they said that they are uh, aggressively working the CFT vehicle in parallel with OFT2. So a- as they're making changes to OFT2, they're making them to the CFT, the crew flight test vehicle as well, which is um, really going to buy them some time, right? And then NASA said once Starliner is up and running, uh, they want to be able to alternate back and forth between Starliner and Crew Dragon. And they would like to fly each of these vehicles once a year. And it's really interesting because SpaceX is already flying more than once a year. <laughs> and uh, so that that's potentially a, a step back for SpaceX. Though, I think it's worth pointing out that that SpaceX is almost done with their initial contract. Um, The contract has an option for additional launches, but like we were kind of wondering which one was going to get to station first um, years ago. Right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, And we were kind of going, okay, well, which one's going to get there first? Like what, what do we hope? What do we, you know, what do we uh, expect to see? And I think all of us expected Crew Dragon to get there first, but I don't think any of us expected Starliner to not get there before Crew Dragon had finished its contract. Like that's that that's that's pretty extreme. Uh, that that's what you call a delay. Yeah, admittedly, it's not the longest contract in the world, but it is the full. It, yes, exactly. The full yeah. gamut, though. I remember us thinking that it was going to be neck and neck, and it kind of yeah. was for a while, and then SpaceX just pulled ahead because yep. they didn't have any major problems like Starliner did. So, and you can't even say it was one thing that delayed Starliner after Crew Dragon was already flying, because originally there were the software issues on that original OFT. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so it was a mix of hardware and software. Well, uh, you know, this this might have been a good uh, topic to talk about in the intro, but they Artemis is definitely I think the NET right now for Artemis one is like February. Mm -hmm. Last last we had talked, we were like, it doesn't look like they're going to fly by the end of the year. And uh, they they put out an NFT and it just. Oh, actually, okay. They're, they're actually targeting a launch in February is, is what it is. So that's, you know, that's not too bad. Um, hopefully SLS, uh, you know, steps up and, and makes that, that launch date. Delays are just, <laughs> slippage is just a part of a new vehicle. Yeah. I mean, especially a vehicle like SLS, like there's just, there's so much going on there. But yeah, I, I cannot wait until, uh, we're in the Artemis era. That's uh, going to be very, very cool. All right. This week we're doing four short and sweet, so lots of little stories. What's the first one, Ben? All right. Lucy has got a solar array issue. The Lucy spacecraft has successfully launched, completed checkout, and is now in cruise mode on its long trip out to the Greek camp of Trojan asteroids. It also performed its primary correction burn and did not require an optional additional maneuver. However, one of the folding fan solar arrays appears to have deployed but not latched. This leaves the array vulnerable to excess movement during attitude changes and thruster burns. Despite all that, the unlatched array is generating nearly full power, giving the team plenty of time to work through recovery options. They have delayed deployment of the instrument pointing platform and are not yet sure of any additional schedule impacts. Next up, Space Adventures ends plans for Crew Dragon tourist flight. Early last year, Space Adventures, the company known for flying a series of private customers to the ISS from 2001 to 2009, 
announced plans to fly four people on a Crew Dragon spacecraft sometime between late 2021 and mid-2022. The flight would be in a free-flying orbit, taking it twice as high as the station, and would stay there for five days before returning to Earth. However, the company has now stated it is no longer going ahead with the mission, after considering the mix of price, timing, and experience while their reservation with SpaceX expired. While this style mission may be offered again in the future, in the meantime, the company has acquired a dedicated Soyuz flight to the station. When MS-20 will fly Yusaku Maezawa, his production assistant Yozo Hirano, and professional cosmonaut Alexander Mazurka. And then next up, NanoRacks announces plans for commercial space station. The commercial space company revealed plans for its Starlab orbital facility, which will be developed with assistance from its majority shareholder Voyager Space as well as Lockheed Martin. Designed to host four astronauts, NanoRacks aims to have the station operational by 2027, and Starlab will consist of a large inflatable habitat, laboratory, and propulsion element, along with a metallic docking node and robotic arm. This is the third proposal after after Axiom and Sierra Space that NASA has received after announcing its commercial low-Earth orbit destination, or CLD, program to support private space stations. So, very cool. I like CLD. And fourthly, Rocket Lab prepares for their first recovery involving a helicopter. The New Zealand company's upcoming Love at First Insight mission will see an electron launch vehicle take two Earth observation satellites from black sky to orbit. The mission's secondary objective, however, will refine the CONOPS and test communications of the company's helicopter during a first stage recovery. While the stage will splash down, the helicopter will be stationed in the recovery zone to visually observe it on descent, beginning its reconnaissance once the booster approaches 15.7 kilometers, or 19,000 feet, from the ocean surface. This is another step towards Rocket Lab's goal of mid-air recovery of the first stage via helicopter. This this is, like, agonizingly, uh, it's kind of this interim step, <laughs> but like, we're getting close, we're getting close, we're getting close. Questions, comments, and corrections, and we have a legitimate correction from Aaron Saudi. Yeah. <laughs> about about Lucy. So what did we get yeah, slightly it's, wrong? Here? It's been a while since I've seen his name pop up. Hi, Aaron. Yeah. So I'll just I'll read the tweet because it's good. Slight correction burn. Lucy used only the first stage of OFT2's Atlas V. That expensive and rare dual stage Centaur used for Starliner was not needed or used. Yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. I, I I talked about all the other changes they made to the first stage, and it it didn't even occur to me that they would need to swap out the uh, the Centaur upper stage. So I I kind of wish that Lucy would have like gotten a dual engine Centaur just for just for kicks, <laughs> just like a fun <laughs> little uh, trivia fact. Um, but yeah, it's wasteful. So it's not too bad. Welcome to the interview portion of the show. Uh, Very excited to have two guests with us today. Uh, We have Will Henry, uh, who is the writer and producer, along with Dylan Taylor, the executive producer of The High Frontier, the untold story of Gerard K. O'Neill. Will and Dylan, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having us. So I feel like maybe a good intro kind of question to sort of start things off would be to tell us a little bit about uh, your backgrounds. And um, I could imagine potentially that transitioning to the genesis of this uh, documentary and how it wound up getting made. Sure. I'm happy to start. Yeah. So I've been a uh, lifelong space, not, I guess, for the 
lack of a better term, and um, really got my involvement in the space industry in, I guess, probably 2008 or so as an early stage uh, investor within the space industry. And then um, later ended up writing some works for Space News and a couple other publications kind of on how the industry was likely to evolve. And from that sort of ended up keynoting some of the major space conferences and just kind of developed into more of a maybe thought leader, uh, if that's the right term. And um, got to know a lot of people in the industry and, and really was sort of uh, lamenting the fact that, you know, there was this rich history to the industry that I felt very few people knew about. And everyone was celebrating sort of Branson and Bezos and Musk as, as we should in terms of what they've achieved in the industry. But I thought we were sort of missing a, a step, which was what shoulders are, are those giants standing on, so to speak. In that context, sort of Jer Jerry O'Neill, as I like to call him, Gerard K. O'Neill, uh, came to mind. And um, I had the ability or opportunity to meet uh, or be introduced to his, his widow, uh, Tasha O'Neill, and uh, learn more about Jerry in that context. And I thought to myself, you know, it's a real shame that people don't know more about his legacy. And um, that's pretty much when I decided that someone needed to make the film and uh, looking around, no one, no one was doing that. So mm. I thought, you know, I'll, I'll just step up and not knowing anything about making a film, frankly, uh, I, I would step up and, and sort of um, get the project off the ground, you know, provide capital uh, to get the, the movie funded. And uh, about that time, I'll, I'll pass it off to Will, but that's that's when Will and I met each other. Yeah, sure. And, and you're right. That's exactly how we got started here. And I uh, I am a filmmaker born and bred in Princeton, New Jersey, ironically, where uh, Jerry himself uh, taught at the university there as a physics professor. Mm. Um, I worked in and out of Hollywood in Los Angeles and New York City. Um, and was on various projects until I landed working on The High Frontier with Dylan. And um, yeah, as, as Dylan said, he got the project going with the uh, capital he'd raised for the film previously. And then I sort of took over with sort of the creative mind, uh, a part of the project, which uh, we did together for about three years. Now, Will, are you a space geek as well? You know, uh, ironically, I actually was not. Um, I've been a science geek um, Growing up, I was raised by a world-class uh, chemist, um, mm. but I was not. Um, and actually, this film has sort of turned me into a little bit of a con, or I'm very much so a, a convert to the space industry. That's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that's an easy way to become a convert, I'd imagine. Yeah, a good film will actually do that. Will, this, this, as I understand, is your first documentary. And Dylan, this is your first foyer into the film industry. Was there anything that really jumped out and surprised you most about the process? Yeah, I mean, I honestly, it was it was much more difficult than I was expecting. Mm. You know, I, I come from the business world. You know, prior to getting to the space industry full time, I was in finance and real estate, and you know, kind of ran large companies, uh, typically mm. public companies. And so I, I'm sort of um, maybe used to a little bit more of a command and control, a little bit more, you know, move in a linear fashion, you know, from step to step. And of course the creative process is not that, right? Mm. And so there's beauty to the creative process, but I think you can also frustrate yourself pretty easily. So it probably took longer than I was expecting. It certainly cost a lot more than I budgeted, that's for <laughs> sure. But, you know, uh, Will and I were actually talking about this over the weekend. You know, the creative team was really pushing me uh, as they should to put some finer, final kind of brush strokes on the film after we had made the film 
to really professionalize it and, and make it a world-class documentary. Incrementally, you know, it wasn't that much more expensive to do it. It wasn't that much longer to do it. And I'm really glad that we did, because if, if you've seen the film, for those of you who've seen the film, the primary thing that we hear from everybody is that they're surprised at the quality of the film, like how mm -hmm. high quality the film is. And, and, we, uh, and we honor that, we treasure that. And the whole idea here was to make the film for posterity, right? As the space industry continues to mm -hmm. take off, you know, literally and, and figuratively, mm -hmm. we're going to be in a position 10 years, 20 years from now where, you know, it's going to be a dinner table conversation every day, what's happening in space. And I think mm -hmm. this film will hold up over that period of time. And I think that's important. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's probably like remodeling your house a little bit. Um, you, you finish that project and you tell yourself, I'm never going to do another home project ever again. And then like <laughs> a couple of years later, you're like, you know, maybe we should maybe we should take on another project. And in fact, Will and I already, <laughs> Will and I are already working on another uh, miniseries actually together on the overview effect. So uh, we're actually working on another film as well. Uh, which is uh, still kind of under the radar screen. So I'll probably have stories to tell and scar tissue to have uh, to report <laughs> you know, after those projects. But, yeah. but but I do think, you know, in all seriousness, I think it's important, you know, the, you know if we're going to make space an endeavor for everybody, it can't just be STEM and hardcore science and, you know, rocket equations, right? We've got to get the hearts and minds of of everybody. And I think the creative arts are are you know, ticket to do that. And we've got to inspire people and we've got to win people over. And so to the extent that this helps do that and also honor Jerry, I think, I think mission accomplished. Yeah, I completely agree. So you said it took longer than you thought. How long did it take to make it? About, well, we'll, we'll fact check me on this, but I think it was about three years and two months. Yeah. That's about the calculation I have too. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, wow. which is a long time. I mean, mm -hmm. it's a long time. I thought it would have taken a year and a half. That's sort of what I had in my mind. So it was roughly double what I had uh, expected. Yeah. Yeah. And we did get kind of lucky on that too. It, it was longer than I had anticipated as well. But the one thing that we got lucky on was the fact that we had finished filming just a month before COVID hit the United States. So, you know, that timeline could have gotten you know, prolonged a little bit, or we may not have, have let it get prolonged, but we got lucky that we were able to go into the edit right around COVID. Mm -hmm. What was it that took so long that you did not anticipate? Yeah, well, I would maybe ask you to comment on that. I mean, I think I think my, my viewpoint is, is, you know, just the creative iterative process, right? So we had a, yeah. a team with Will and the uh, other producers on the film and the director, uh, Ryan and, and Kyle from Subtractive, who, who are terrific talented filmmakers as well. And then we had lots of people, I, I forget how many hours of footage we shot, Will, but it was a couple hundred at least. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we bit off a little bit more than we could chew in terms of, we just had so much great content. Yeah. Um, so I think that yeah. was part of it. And then back to what I said earlier, putting the final brushstrokes on, you know, I don't know, you know, in the film, for those of you who've seen it, you'll, you'll see this just unbelievable animations to open the film. Mm -hmm which are some of the best animations I think I think ever done, honestly. So I actually did love that, and I wanted to see more of it, and if you could make more of that, that'd be great. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Seconded. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, again, th that was an example that it took a while, and it was expensive. I'm very, very, very happy we did it, mm. but it wasn't in the original thinking. Um, and then just the last point, which is, again, this is my, you know, naive uh, naivete playing out, but just the licensing 
um, mm. of the clips is just a bear. I mean, mm -hmm. um, you know, the more content you have, and it, it, again, the, the film is very content dense, you know, it's a full length documentary mm -hmm. and every clip has to be cleared. Right. Mm -hmm. So it, mm -hmm. that also took quite some time. So obviously this documentary focuses on the life of Gerard O'Neill, but how much did you guys have to learn about O'Neill cylinders themselves and how, you know, the science behind that works? Because that's not something that you focus too much on. I mean, you do a little bit, but obviously it's mostly about the man himself. So, but how much did you have to learn about uh, these giant space habitats. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot that you can read about them. I mean, I suppose there is and I just haven't read it, but uh, at the very least, there's very few schematics because it's just such a very ambitious idea that it seems that people uh, just kind of like leave it up there and not, you know, try to like bring it down to earth. Well, you know, I, I think just speaking from my perspective, um, I, I came into it completely blind. Um, but I, once I got into it and read the high frontier, the book Jerry wrote, started this all, um, I actually really came to find that there was far more I knew about it than I previously thought because his ideas, his, his, his rotating, you know, cylindrical space habitat, has permeated all of pop culture for at least 20, mm -hmm. 30 years. Um, mm. you, know, you look at all the sort of famous, uh, you know, uh, animated films uh, over time, you know, uh, Mobile Suit Gundam and uh, Babylon mm. 5 and, and, and so on and so on and so on. These all have the O'Neill cylinder in them. Um, as far as the science, we, we one thing going back and watching is that you're absolutely right. We did put every little detail about how they work in it. And I, I think that that was sort of for future posterity, because, you know, when you think about how the space industry grows, uh, there's so many elements that change over time. And while reading the math of how these things work, it's actually very, very simple how they work. It's just quite expensive. And um, there's nothing new that needs to be invented to do so. But because things transform over time, we knew that potentially it might not be a specific O'Neill cylinder that would be made in the future, but it would be something like it. So we might as well give the sort of broad strokes of how it would work rather than the very specific details. That said, the specific details are very fun. It's, it, it just <laughs> unfortunately didn't fit into the film. That partially answers one of the questions I had, which was, kind of a behind the scenes thing because I, I love movies a lot and I, you're absolutely right about this looking like a sharp blockbustery you know proper professional documentary like really really good looking but um how exactly do you research this sort of thing like i, I rec like you read the book you know is, is that you do you have a team of people that you hire on there to kind of like go and find out who to talk to like i mean how, exactly how does that process work because i've always been kind of curious because these documentaries seem to have so much information in them it can seem a little daunting of where to start. Yeah, on that one, um, you know, believe it or not, I, I had sort of sketched out what I wanted to do with the film at the beginning, which is this whole notion that, you know, we've cracked rocket reusability, you know, the, the classic sort of dual booster landing simultaneously, you know, SpaceX, kind of that science fiction moment that we all kind of remember. And to me, that was the end of the film, right? The, the, the film sort of ends with that, but it also begins with that. It begins with it in the sense that how do, how do we get to that spot, right? How, how, did, how did we arrive here? And the answer isn't, you know, Elon founded SpaceX. It, it's traced further back than that. And it ends with it in the sense that we're now uh, on the edge of kind of delivering this promise of the high frontier and opening the high frontier, but what's next? And that's really what we want to leave the the viewers with, especially the viewers that, you know, let's say are under 30 years old to say, yeah. you know, how are you going to contribute to this future? Right. So given that landscape of sort of how we want to lay the film out, it was very much, 
how do we tell the story about uh, Jerry's influence and how he uh, created O'Neillians like Jeff Bezos and, and, you know, famously Jeff Bezos gives his valedictorian high school speech and says, yeah. hey, I've read this book by Jerry O'Neill. I'm going to go make a bunch of money in some industry. I don't know what. And then I'm going to, you know, colonize space basically or uh, settle space. So which he's pretty, you know, he's pretty much doing that, <laughs> pretty much doing what he said when he was 17. But in that context, I had started with a couple of interviewees prominent in the film, Rick Tomlinson and Frank White. And from there, I just sort of said, who else should we speak with? And then they led me to a couple others. I then asked that question, who else should we speak with? I just kept on asking that. And of course, we asked Tosh O'Neill as well. And I think we interviewed I want to say like 22 people, Will, I, you, mm -hmm. you might know, but 22. And I think only, unfortunately, only about 14 made the film. Uh, and it wasn't that the other eight weren't fantastic. It's just, you know, at some point you've got to, you, mm -hmm. you know, make make tough decisions about what's in and what's out. And then in terms of the fact checking, you know, that's a great question. You know, I think, I think you know, we would, pretty much everything we put into the film, you know, we, we sort of did want to research and make sure it was authentic or past muster, so to speak, but it was more ad hoc in terms of how we did that. And most of it was, you know, people's narrative about what they experienced. So there wasn't really anything to, you know, really fact check per se, but, um, but yeah. And then, you know, it's interesting. The Space Studies Institute was also very helpful. That's the institute Jerry founded and they had a lot of his legacy material. They were aware of that clip, as you might recall, with with uh, Isaac Asimov uh, and, and Jerry, you know, where Isaac Asimov calls it planetary chauvinism, um, mm -hmm. uh, which I thought was was brilliant. But at any rate, that sort of, you know, it was a little bit of a worm, wormhole or rabbit hole that we went down, but it was just really pulling on these initial threads that we had uh, set up. It's really interesting. And and yeah, so if you're listening, right, <laughs> there's a lot of big names that are that appear in this documentary. <laughs> uh, Jerry had a very big uh, approach. I, I I also did want to ask, and since you bring it up, could you tell us a little more about the Space Studies Institute? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great organization that Jerry founded. I think Tosh O'Neill is is still uh, on the board. Tasha, his his widow, and the whole idea there was Jerry, as I understood it, um, wanted a platform that was sort of deconflicted from any business interests he might have, more of a nonprofit. Um, and I think, you know, the model, I don't know if he ever said this, but the model might be, you know, the advanced uh, labs at Princeton, right? That, and keep in, keep in mind, he was an academic first and foremost, right? So I think it was his idea to sort of create something that would be more of a legacy type asset that could study these things like O'Neill cylinders and um, and apply for grants and do research and things of that mm. nature. It's still existing today. And, uh, you know, it's one of many organizations out there that are kind of focusing on this. You know, the other organization Jerry touched, of course, was the National uh, Space Society. You know, they're very much into space settlement and, and very much O'Neillians as well. So, Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's pretty much what SSI is doing today. So this might be a difficult question to answer, but I was wondering, Jerry O'Neill, part of the idea for coming up with this documentary in the first place, like you're saying, is that we're kind of missing a step when we celebrate all these very uh, well-known visionaries uh, nowadays that Jerry was a big part of influencing uh, them. And in that era, another big household name uh, who influenced a lot of people, but became a household name, unlike Jerry, was Carl Sagan. W why do you think their kind of paths in pop culture bifurcated in that kind of way? Yeah, I, I know Will has got some thoughts on this too, but I think I think it was primarily 
Carl was a better mass communicator. Based on what I know about Jerry, and I, I never met the man, um, he was phenomenal one-on-one. You know, he sort of had that um, Bill Clinton type charisma where yeah. everyone felt like they were the most important thing in Jerry's world when Jerry was speaking with them. So I think Jerry was very good one-on-one. He was very good with small groups. He was a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant man, a lot smarter than people realize. I mean, he would have, you know, we covered in the film, but he would have won the Nobel Prize in physics had he lived longer because he really was the inventor of the particle accelerator. So I think I think Jerry's gift was really more one-on-one small groups. I think Carl was more brilliant at mass communications. Yeah. The, the turn of a phrase, you know, pale blue dots, you know, those kinds of things that captivate large audiences. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably what I would see as the major differences between the two. Yeah. Yeah. And and while O'Neill was also a very savvy businessman, he, he uh, his widow had confided in me that, you know, they didn't want enormous wealth. And while I'm not entirely certain that Carl felt differently, he did amass quite an amount of wealth just from being the personality that he was. And I'm not mm-hmm. sure the same opportunities were sort of laid out for O'Neill, but he, um, he he was a little bit more focused on the sort of classroom setting inspiration rather than the TV inspiration. That makes sense. And how difficult was it to find the footage that you have of him? Because obviously that's all you have to go with. Um, now there's tons of stuff for someone like Carl Sagan, but I've never actually seen anything of Jerry O'Neill until this documentary. I had heard about him, but I don't know how much of him was ever you know recorded on film. Uh, so what was that like? Oh man, it's it's a great question because um, <laughs> you know there was no obvious starting point to finding the material for O'Neill. And uh, you made a good point. The difference is is that there is a lot of material for people like Carl Sagan. What's unique about O'Neill is that while there may not be as much, there was still a lot. And in this case, no one had seen it, Mm -hmm. um, which made for a much better film, in my opinion. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, obviously we did start with the Space Studies Institute, um, who was an early supporter of the film. um, And they kind of like with the interviews they said well if you've gone through our archives here's the next place to go and here's the next place to go and mm-hmm. you know we had people sort of lining up to be in this film and in the same regard those people were you know they were really hoping that O'Neill's story would get told and said well if I'm not going to be in the film or even if I am going to be in the film you do need to go in and talk to this person or go to this archive and it was just a a uh, sort of uh, you know, a world tour of going to find those materials, documenting documenting them, and then uh, the very long and extensive and expensive process of uh, actually licensing licensing those uh, items. What's exciting is that no one's seen, uh, I'd say, 75% of what's in the film before. So in that mm. regard, it's very um, uh, bold and exciting. Do you think that there's, that there's one person in particular uh, at the frontier of new space who would most exemplify what Jerry kind of was pushing for or had the uh, the vision of? Yeah, pro- probably Jeff Bezos. I mean, and I just say that because I think his, what he says his vision is for space uh, is very much aligned with, with the O'Neillian vision. That being said, I think Elon has done more to open up the high frontier than anybody because hmm. he's cracked this, you know, rocket reusability, which is, is the most fundamental problem that needed to be solved, right? The elevator, if you will. Right. Mm-hmm. And if you get Starship done, which... You know, I wouldn't bet against him. I, I don't know anybody who would. Uh, but if he if he implements Starship the way he has laid it out, I, I think that's an even, you know, bigger game changer. 
So I think, you know, it's, it's definitely Jeff and Elon for sure. But I think I would give the edge a little bit to Jeff just because he he seems to be a little bit more of an O'Neillian. Uh, not to say Elon's, you know, not in favor of habitat in space, but Elon's very, very focused on Mars. Yeah. And I guess now would be a good time to specify what that means to be an O'Neillian. Um, could you explain what his vision was for these giant cylinders in space? Yeah. I think that the easiest way to explain what O'Neill stood for is to talk about what the, the, the opposite, sort of how his foray into space occurred. And, and the whole notion was, and keep in mind, he was a physics professor. So mm -hmm. in physics, everything's first principles, right? That's sort of the way physicists mm -hmm. think. Uh, and that's why they're so brilliant at solving problems. But but basically, he asked the question to his, to his class, where is the right place to build infrastructure in space? And uh, at the time, and, and still today, many people think that the answer is uh, on planets, right? You go to Mars, you go to the moon, and you build infrastructure there. And what the physics tells you is actually, that's actually not correct. The best place to build infrastructure is in free space and stable orbits at the so-called Lagrangian points between uh, orbital bodies, L3, L5. And the reason for that is, you know, as, as Robert Heinlein famously said, once you're in orbit, you're halfway to anywhere. So the idea is that you build infrastructure uh, where the energy uh, gradient is low. And then from there, you can, uh, you can go wherever you like, right? But you don't build your home and your infrastructure deep in a gravity well, right? So imagine crawling out of a gravity well, namely Earth, and then crawling back in another gravity well, namely Mars, right? So the notion would be, well, build your infrastructure outside the gravity well, and then travel between those different points. But don't mm -hmm. build the heavy infrastructure in a gravity well. That, that's really the logic behind it. And I think the more people who look at it, the more people agree with that. Uh, now, they're not mutually exclusive ideas. Right. You can still settle Mars and still have infrastructure in space, right? They're not, they're not all or nothing. But mm -hmm. that's, that's really the difference. And then, of course, the O'Neill cylinder really is about uh, creating artificial gravity, right? The cylinder is really to enable a spinning habitat that creates artificial gravity. That's that's why it's built as a cylinder. I think that's a good vision because, I mean, I, I kind of fall in his camp too, just because like settling Mars, you still have to contend with the low gravity and a lot of other like natural problems. But in, you know, free open space, you can essentially make it exactly how you want it to be pretty much. And plus it's just in space and that's always seemed cool. So I just want that to happen. <laughs> uh, that's just, that's just my vision too. Yeah. I think it's better. Yeah. My thoughts are, you know, with Mars, you can't terraform away the gravity, but with the O'Neill cylinder, you can. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what's nice too is that and, and and Dylan's absolutely right we're not only can you do both we are doing both you know there's there's multiple billionaires in this country using their private financial gains to do both you know there's there's hmm. you know major advancements on uh, in both and they are not mutually mutually exclusive um I hope that one day we are on Mars and have O'Neill cylinders you know and more mm, for sure so I guess kind of uh, we're kind of wondering, and you you had already alluded to it. What's next? Because uh, as I understand, uh, right, Dylan, it's the uh, the multiverse media group uh, that you, you you founded to back this film. Uh, so you had alluded to uh, a mini series and another film with that film still under the radar, but uh, maybe we could talk. Uh, you could tell us a little bit, give us a teaser for uh, your this upcoming mini series. Yeah. So multiverse media, just quickly on that, it has a film production. 
subsidiary. It also has a publishing company that publishes a lot of books, including uh, books by Frank White, The Overview Effect, and, and others mm. that you might know. And then there are other parts of the, to the media group as well. They own um, the company owns, uh, you know, a few websites that you might know, like New Space Global and a few others. But back to the film piece, yeah, we're we're working on uh, without revealing too much um, a mini series. Uh, on the overview effect uh, that's going to feature a lot of astronaut interview and footage. And um, we're working on that currently and collaborating with it with, with a few other folks. And I, I would say Will can probably comment on timing on that, but we're actively working on that. And then the other film is something that we're working on with another filmmaker. Um, can't reveal too much there other than to say it'll be more global in nature, more of a global uh, film. And it will focus a bit more on sort of the economics of space. But other than that, I can't talk too much more about it because we, um, we're under some pretty, you know, tight NDAs with the filmmaker and all that, but it's, it's going to be great. And, you know, I have a day job, which is to run a space company called Voyager. So the multiverse media piece is something Will's very heavily involved in. I'll likely hire someone full-time to run the media group just because I don't have a ton of time to spend on it. But, uh, but it's also a really important part of what I think I can contribute to the industry, which is to continue to tell these stories that I think are really important um, and hopefully educate and inspire people, right? That's what motivates me is to get uh, people excited about where space is headed. And, you know, there's a lot of counter narratives for space, a lot of negativity about space, right? We're, mm -hmm. we're, we're escaping Earth. We're leaving people behind. And I just don't see it that way. You know, I think space mm -hmm. is the next big thing for humanity. I think it's a tool for transformation. I think space, we go to space to benefit Earth, not to escape Earth, right? And all these different narratives, I think, need to be told. So that's why I'm, I'm passionate about getting those stories out there. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and just for the timelines, by the way, I think we're looking at about a couple months, definitely by the end of the year for the, the uh, uh, overview effect uh, miniseries. Oh, wow. Um, and then you'll probably maybe about a year and a half to two years for the uh, the other uh, film mm -hmm. project as well. Do you have any plans, and maybe this has already happened, but I doubt it. Do you have any plans on doing any shooting of footage in space since that's now becoming a thing? Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> we've, got, <laughs> we've got a few ideas on that. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, yes. The short answer is yes, but I, I think we still have a little ways to go before we can pull it off. You know, it's like happening now and uh, that might actually be something that like smaller filmmakers can accomplish. Or I mean, not small, small, but you know, not like something that's produced by a giant studio, but... It doesn't require Tom Cruise behind it yeah, to make it happen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you don't need to attach that name. You can just uh, go and it. Yeah, no, we're getting very close on that, actually. And, and one thing that the film industry has transformed with is the ability to do things incredibly small um, and mm. without chemicals. <laughs> so you can actually <laughs> get the film made and, and, and do it all for much cheaper and much smaller. Mm. Um, mm. So I, even if it's not us, people will start doing that a lot quicker. It's just a comment that I was about to say, which is uh, about the miniseries. I love listening to astronauts talk. And so I know I'm definitely going to be looking forward to that big time. We are working in tandem with NASA on this miniseries. And um, what that means is uh, that we will have access to and uh, are working with already um, tons and tons of interviews and footage that has never been used or seen before. And that's highly mm -hmm. unusual 
people don't typically get the um, access to NASA that we've gotten for this project. So that's pretty exciting. So uh, we are down to our final two questions. And our traditional penultimate one is, where would you like to be found on the internet? Yeah, so you can find out more about the film, uh, grab copies of the Blu-ray and DVD, as well as find the streaming links for the film and uh, links to buy the copy of the book, The High Frontier by O'Neill, um, at The High Frontier movie.com and you can find out more about uh, what I'm up to in the film industry at willhenryfilm.com and then Dylan I'll let you go ahead and, and plug your own as well yeah sure so for me best site would be uh, my personal website dylantaylor.org and all my social channels and everything's on there and you can contact me on that site if you'd like to as well awesome and of course we'll have these all uh, on in the show notes uh, available on the website the final question or set of questions is something called overrated or underrated which is uh, something that i think ben lifted from some other podcast but anyway we're doing it now so we're going to start off with will the first one is dailies and i guess by that he means like what you get when you're working on a film are they overrated or underrated? Underrated. And then the next one for Dylan, science communication. Underrated. Critical theories. Oh, goodness. Um, underrated. Artificial gravity. Overrated. Overrated. Okay. And, and then the last one is for both merry-go-rounds. Uh, <laughs> overrated. <laughs> Under, underrated. I'll take the underrated. Uh, there you go. <laughs> Well, thank you guys for being here. Uh, this was really fun. And hopefully when you have another film out uh, or miniseries, you can come back and talk to us because I'm really excited about that. Cannot wait to see it. Wonderful. Well, thank, thank you. Great to be with you. Yeah, thanks for having us. So this week in Spaceflight History, we have four winners. We have the Greek, Anderson Danova, Bill Boabob, and Deskin Miller. So, and I have to apologize. Somehow I did not mention the year last week. I don't know how that happened, but I, I guess I was so excited about my clue. I just <laughs> skipped the year. I listened to it and it sounded so natural to just like it it didn't sound like you know we had said it and then it got cut it was just like you were like ready for that clue <laughs> but i think yeah you tweeted the year right so those who got the correct uh, answer yeah the the year went in the show notes i might have done a dedicated tweet but they at, at very least they're in the show notes so you can always check there we we make so many mistakes that you know we need to have some uh some redundancy. I don't know why it's so hard to just get the clue out with the right date and say it out loud. It I, I swear I'm going to do a checklist and it's <laughs> it's going to be connected to the bot. So folks in the chat um, can like monitor us as we check things off or don't check things off. Uh, we'll, we'll make sure that we get a little more uh, accuracy, I guess. We'll, we'll make this a little more repeatable. Uh, I thought we I thought we'd maybe send out hard copies of. Uh... Uh, uh, and have them uh, tied to our legs or whatever. I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There. I could, I could uh, uh, laser etch some, uh, some whiteboards. Yeah, Velcro them to our thighs. Yep. There you go. <laughs> we'll get, we'll get flight suits too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, nice. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the clue was cluster thruster and the event, and I'll get to the clue eventually. And I suspect that we would have had more correct answers had I mentioned the year. Because <laughs> I think it was a pretty obvious clue. Yeah. At least as far as our clues go, this one wasn't too hard. But yeah, cluster thruster. The event was the first launch of the Saturn One. So this is a rocket that you know we don't. I feel like we don't talk about much. You don't hear much about because mm. really it was more. The big thing about this is that it, it was sort of like the first real rocket. Rocket. Um, to make a comparison, <laughs> I think it was John F. Kennedy or someone who said at the time that it was like the rocket equivalent of like a DC three. <laughs> Not just a repurposed missile. Yeah. 
not just kind of like thrown together, although it kind of was just thrown together. And that's uh, kind of what makes this a cluster thruster. <laughs> so the origin of this vehicle, the reason why it was commissioned, I guess you could say, was that the Department of Defense needed something to launch commsats uh, and quote unquote, some other satellites. They didn't say what, um, but I guess we can, you know, make some guesses as to what those would be. But really also there's a, there were a, a lot of other entities that were kind of involved and they all they had their own requirements. And so this is really a rocket that is to some degree kind of designed by committee because, you know, like everyone just wanted this vehicle to do what they wanted it to do. Mm. So it was kind of a hot mess for a good long while. And at the end of the story, big spoiler here is that it ended up not even really ever doing anything. I mean, they flew it 10 times, but um, it was quickly replaced. So, yeah, the Department of Defense needed something capable of putting 9,100 kilograms and that's just a minimum into low Earth orbit or a lesser payload into geostationary transfer orbit. So that is sort of what precipitated this. The thing is they needed it by 1961. And this is, um, again, a huge part of why the vehicle ended up becoming what it was, was just because they didn't have much time. They didn't have time to develop a launch vehicle from scratch. They kind of wanted to beat the Russians because this was the Soviet era and they were kind of like trailing the Russians or trailing the Soviet Union ever since Sputnik. So they kind of wanted to catch up. So there's a lot of different agencies here. And this actually started before the formation of NASA, which I believe was 1958, 59, 58. You got it. <laughs> 58. OK. Yeah. But this started in 1957. So there was no NASA to lead the way. And even after its formation, that still didn't really happen, or at least it took a while for that to happen. So you have the Department of Defense. You have Von Braun's team at the Army Ballistic Missile Agency. You have the Air Force and then you have ARPA. So these are the agencies and various institutions that are involved in the development of this rocket or that at least want to have a hand in it. But Von Braun kind of stepped forward and said, you know, I got an idea here. We can develop this rocket by basically taking a first stage made from the tankage of other vehicles. And uh, that's where the whole cluster thruster name comes from. And it was actually the leading critics of uh, the Saturn one called it the cluster's last stand because uh, <laughs> I guess that was just, you know, their pejorative way of referring to it. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it was a cluster of tanks. But uh, this doesn't mean because apparently this was a bit of a misunderstanding. These are not tanks taken from other launch vehicles, which would have been the Jupiter and the Thor missiles. These are tanks that were basically designed to those same specs, but they were actually lengthened. And the important thing here is to actually keep them the same diameter because in that way you don't need to get new tooling because again this had to be done quickly so basically you have in the center of this first stage you have one big jupiter tank and that one contains liquid oxygen and then you have eight redstone tanks uh, surrounding it and the redstone tanks were alternately colored uh, the black ones contained rp1 and the white ones contained more liquid oxygen i learned from a video from a really cool youtube channel that i've never heard of because he only has like maybe 2,000 subscribers the channel is called cost plus content which is a great name mm. I love it. Uh, he mentions that um, this actually, the alternating colors helped identify it or, you know, potentially identify any problems during ascent because then you could see better what was going on. But then also, and I don't think we've ever discussed this, it helps with the roll program. And I never thought of that. And that's actually why I think so many rockets have, you know, that checkerboard pattern. Um, yeah. And I don't know if we've ever discussed that that's we why that was. But um, I think Amy Shira titled talked about it was either her or um scott manley maybe both of them talked about the reason that saturn 5 was painted the way it was like each of those 
boundaries between black and white is a, is a helpful location to be able to spot from a long distance. Colin in the chat says it's like a big rotary encoder painted on the vehicle. And yeah, that's exactly the way mm-hmm. to think about it. Yeah. I looked that up for uh, SLSs, uh, SRBs in particular, and yeah, they're, they're used for, useful for photogrammetry. It's kind of the, the term for being able to make measurements about the vehicle. And yeah, Colin mentions parachutes. That's exactly what I was thinking. As soon as you said rotary encoder, I went, oh yeah, just like uh, uh, parachutes in general, but most recently, uh, Perseverance's uh, parachutes. And so that even applies to the rockets themselves, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, because like when you're looking at them through a you know high magnification camera or tracking scope or whatever they use, and it's you know like miles away, um, you know you kind of probably need those little indicators there. Mm-hmm. And and when do you need those indicators? Other than when something goes wrong and like when something goes wrong, you're not going to be guaranteed a really nice uh, known aspect on the vehicle. You know, (laughs) you kind of get what you get. And so that's when these things become helpful. So then moving on to the second stage. So the plan, of course, was to make this also 120 inches in diameter, which is the same as the first stage, because again, you don't need any more tooling. But uh, the Department of Defense, or at least one particular gentleman in the Department of Defense wanted to change that to 160 inches. um, And this was in order to accommodate the dinosaur vehicle. So that was like a big problem. And uh, nobody liked that, uh, because that would take much more time and much more money, and you'd have to read tool, everything. And it was just, you know, again, kind of a disaster. And in fact, the Department of Defense had already tried to cancel the whole Saturn One project uh, because they thought you could do all this with modified ICBMs. So you didn't even need the Saturn One because essentially you have, you have like these different agencies competing over resources and time. And um, so you don't want ARPA like working on something if they could be doing something else that is perhaps like more beneficial and like you don't want the airports doing this if they could be doing that and so it's just this whole it just feels like you know a lot of different government agencies that can't all come to a consensus um that was kind of the you know the whole tone of uh this whole endeavor so in the end what happened was they decided to stick with the 120 inch diameter and they would put a liquid hydrogen upper stage and this is something that Werner Braun Braun was kind of skeptical about he wasn't sure about it because it just, you know, seemed a little bit too technically challenging. But at the end of the day, it did win out. So that's what happened. So what they ended up selecting was um, the S4 for the second stage, which had six of the RL-10 engines, which is a lot because when you look at modern second stages or, or upper yeah. stages, it's always what, like one or two and they put yeah. six of them on there. Kind of crazy. They just have a lot of stages or a lot of rockets everywhere <laughs> or engines everywhere. Like that's, that's kind of a lot. And then for the third stage, they wanted to use what was called the S5, which was two RL-10 engines. And the interesting thing is that uh, this upper stage, it never actually flew, or it flew, but it never actually lit its engine. It was just filled up with water, and that was just to act as ballast. Mm -hmm. They did do a couple of interesting projects on on two flights. I believe it was the second and third flight. They actually released the water into the upper atmosphere the ionosphere and it was called project high water and it just i guess was to see what would happen in the upper atmosphere if you released a bunch of water and it looks cool um and it actually created a little bit of artificial lightning um i don't know what else they were hoping to gain from that but it's a it's a very cool looking sight to see at least you know it, it can help you identify upper atmosphere winds i would imagine it, it's also probably a good way to to inspect the 
uniformity of pressure. Cause like mm-hmm. if there's an area of, of high air density, like maybe the water wouldn't expand into it quite as fast. I don't know. Th- this was, so, this was so early that, yeah, we were just throwing, mm-hmm. uh, throwing things at the wall and just like, okay, th- let's do this. Let's do this. Like we don't even know what questions to ask yet. Data from it could be useful now. Cause this is one of the ways you could potentially deorbit spacecraft. Hmm. You send something on a suborbital trajectory, but it, puts a large cloud of, you know, something. <laughs> it doesn't have to be water, maybe something lighter or cheaper to get up there. And then, yeah, have your satellite then pass through it and slow down enough. So this event specifically is the first launch of the Saturn 1. Um, so I guess I should talk about that briefly. Not a whole lot happened, which I guess is a good thing. They didn't have any major problems. Uh, they launched it on uh, the Saturn 5 pad. And the interesting thing here is that they had to use what's called the milk stool. And it's the mm. funniest looking thing. And I don't know what it is about small objects that make them just look just like instantly cute, but it does look like a cute little rocket when it's sitting on its own little <laughs> perch because it's not big enough to be on the Saturn V pad. So it has to kind of like sit on a stool in order to make the necessary connections. Mm-hmm. And it's just a funny looking sight to see. It's like a, just like a little kid rocket <laughs> trying to reach the countertop. So it needs a stool. <laughs> Got a booster seat. You can you can see that in uh, for all mankind when they launch a Saturn One B. They've got the milk stool and oh, everything yeah. in there. <laughs> the Saturn One was 180 feet, but the Saturn Five was 363. So like you know, this is a big difference. So yeah, you need that milk stool there. <laughs> so on launch day, like everyone there was pretty much expecting a huge explosion on the pad because actually that had not not happened, right? <laughs> that that hadn't that had not happened until this date. Pretty much every launch that they did, you know, the very first launch was always a big explosion on the pad. So that's kind of what they were expecting, but that didn't happen. Um, it lifted off successfully, and um, this was not an orbital launch. Um, you know, it was just like suborbitally ditched in uh, the Atlantic Ocean, but that was all they were looking to do um, because they had those upper stages filled with water. But um, yeah, no explosion on the pad, so... <laughs> So, like I spoiled in the beginning, there were only 10 launches made. Then after that point, uh, the Saturn 1 was quickly replaced by the Titan 3. So, you know, there was all this fuss about getting this vehicle to be what everyone wanted it to be. But at the end of the day, no one even needed it. So that's kind of a sad irony there. But it did sort of lead into a lot of the technology development for later vehicles. So this was kind of like, it was almost more like a pathfinding type of a rocket. It's just that no one knew that at the time. Um, but that's kind of what it sort of ended up being. So, yeah, that is uh, This Week in Space by History. That is the Saturn One, uh, as briefly as I can make it. <laughs> and I, I not only, like, I really appreciate just that, that history and how you were able to focus on, <laughs> I don't know how to phrase this, but I guess now I finally understand where all these numbers and designations for the different parts of a Saturn V come from, <laughs> which I didn't quite realize yeah. before. You know what? Yeah. Why does the S4 have the B at the end? Why does the S1 have a C at the end? And and it's yeah, because of this. Because there was a rock. Yeah. yeah. There was a vehicle that came before it's it. the original. Okay, Ben, now you're up. <laughs> Next week, which is the 2nd through the 8th of November, uh, do you have a clue for us? Yeah, I've actually got an audio clue. So the year is 2011, and your clue is... <laughs> what the hell? Good luck with that clue. Oh my <laughs> I, I have no idea. I have no idea either, but I'm looking forward to finding out. Man, okay, well, you heard it. Uh, you can't unhear it, and... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow, so that is the clue. Uh oh my goodness. And uh yeah, if you think you know what that <laughs> is refer- what that 
what event that clue is referring to, then uh, shoot us an email or give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck. Good luck, everybody. So moving right along to upcoming Spaceflight events, five events. What's the first one, Dennis? Well, first off, we have a Soyuz 2.1A launch uh, on October 28th that will be taking uh, Progress MS-18 to the space station. Uh, So that's MS-18 by the Russians uh, counting, and that's the 79th Progress by NASA's counting. And so, right, it's a resupply to the ISS, and uh, the launch is at midnight UTC, so 0,000 hours, (laughs) I guess, 0,000 hours. Again, on uh, October 28th. And it will be launching out of the out of Baikonur Cosmodrome. All right. Then after that, we have Astra launching what appears to be another rocket 3.3. I don't think they've gone up to 3.4 yet. And Tim Dodd uh, is my source on that one. And rocket is going to be flying STP-27AD2. I have to sound that out slowly because otherwise it sounds like I'm not saying letters. Uh Alpha Delta 2. Okay. Um, it's a classified payload, so we don't know exactly what's in there, but it's uh, a Space Force uh, contracted uh, payload through de- the Defense Innovation Unit's uh, other transaction agreement that they have with Astra. Um, we are really cheering for Astra. Mm-hmm. Okay, so a quick uh, correction burn from not Chris in the chat right now, but Chris Hoffman, uh, he actually wanted to let us know that Astra um, intentionally leaves the gate open on that fence. We were talking about that last <laughs> week, whether it blew the, the fence open or not. They actually leave it open partially because of a situation like this. In reality, it's it's really about the um, exhaust diverter blowing exhaust out in that direction. But yeah, the, the gate was intentionally left open. Okay, so um, STP-27 Alpha Delta 2 is going to be launching on October 28th. That's a Thursday. Um, it has a fairly large window that runs from 0400 UTC to 0730 UTC. And then after that, on the 29th going back to that progress mission um we have the progress 79 docking the coverage of that begins at 8 45 p.m and the actual docking is scheduled for 9 34 p.m and again that is eastern daylight time uh that is always what nasa broadcasts are set to so uh check that out if you can and then really exciting one on October 31st, uh, a nice spooky launch, a Falcon 9 mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, will be taking SpaceX's uh, Dragon with, uh, you know, Crew f- uh, Crew 3 to the station. And so this is uh, this is going to consist of uh, a lot of rookies. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, the, there's a rookie commander, Rajachari, the only veteran on the mission, uh, the pilot, Tom Marshburn, and then mission specialists, uh, Caleb Barron, uh, all of them uh, NASA astronauts, and then ESA na- astronauts. ESA astronaut Matthias Maurer as well uh, will round out the crew. And so, uh, again, this is on the 31st, uh, and uh, the launch is at 0621 UTC. And so super exciting whenever you see a crewed uh, vehicle go to orbit. So NASA TV actually says that coverage is going to be continuous. uh, The launch coverage is going to be continuous through docking, hatch opening, and welcoming ceremony. I don't know how they're going to do that, running from Saturday to Monday afternoon continuous. I, I wonder if this is uh, – they, they 
made a typo. But the uh, the coverage for the hatch opening is currently scheduled on Monday, November 1st at 1.50 a.m. Eastern Time. Uh, and then the welcoming ceremony is scheduled uh, for 2.20 a.m. Eastern Time. Um, and yeah, I, I get, I guess they're like covering the entire on orbit life of, of this free flying dragon. That's, that's very cool. Um, I, I hope that's the case. It'd be really cool to, to tune into, uh, NASA TV while we're recording next week and see, <laughs> uh, yeah. see, uh, footage. I, I can't imagine that they're going to be broadcasting from inside the vehicle, but maybe, uh, maybe footage of, of its current location. All right. Uh, so those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right. Let's deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And a special shout out to those who joined us in today's episode in the chat. We had Chris, a.k.a. Stye Garfield, and Colin. Thanks for joining us. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen. Tell a friend about our show or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign affiliate links and other resources. And for more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Bye, everybody. See you.